I've had a lot of conversations with people. Anytime I talk about Lexi, things get different. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that gets different is, for whatever reason, just saps a lot of energy out of me. However, um, I, I think that it's worth it because we always want to glorify God with whatever we have in our lives, right? You know, whatever it is. There's nothing in our lives that, that is outside of the reach of God's um, ability to influence others with His glory through our presence. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, um, I look forward to being together again tonight. And I look forward to being together this morning. And it was weird, it was 62 degrees this morning. Isn't that strange? That is good camp weather. You know how you can tell it's July in Michigan? You can't. <laughs> our, care, our weather is so strange. It's so uncharacteristic to itself. I love that about Michigan. I love that. So I have uh, family members who moved to Florida and lived there for a while. Florida's great. Um, it's hot, but it's great. But they said the one thing they missed about Michigan, living in Florida, is the weather never really changes. It's just a variation on sweltering. And they, <laughs> they said that uh, basically they're just running from one air-conditioned space to another. The other thing about Florida is I really don't like snakes. I just don't. And in Florida, the snakes especially, I don't like. That's, where the, that's the state where people set their pet snakes free, right? And then they just go into the Everglades. Anyway, so let's talk about Hebrews for a moment, shall we? Turn with me to Hebrews 1.3, if you would. Hebrews 1.3. We talked a little bit about the character of God, the exact representation of his being. And by the way, who wrote Hebrews? We don't know. Who might it have been? Priscilla. Priscilla, maybe. There's not a strong case for it, but it's a maybe. Barnabas, Barnabas is a little more likely. Apollos. Apollos, especially Martin Luther believed firmly that Apollos wrote it. Some people say that Luke acted as a secretary mm -hmm. to, uh, Paul. to Paul. Yeah, some people say that Luke sort of transliterated it into a better Greek after, after hearing it from Paul, which is maybe. Who probably didn't write it? Paul. Paul. Who gets the credit for writing it in most churches? Paul. Okay. So if your pastor, if, if he or she gets up and they're like, let's read Paul's letter to the Hebrews, you have permission to stand up <laughs> and then sit back down. Because, <laughs> yeah, pastoring is a really hard job. Don't tell them right after the service. That's the last time they want to hear what was wrong with their message. So. Yeah, don't, yeah, put it, actually, you can blame it on me. I'll be happy to be your scapegoat. This bald guy said, blah, 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 blah. And when you sing Jehovah Jireh, again, that bald guy said, we're not supposed to be singing this. Blasphemy. So it says that Jesus, well, I should correct myself. It says in verse 3 that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, which means that the Son of God has the same aura, the same essence, the same um, appearance and presence, if you will, as God. Which is profound, isn't it? That we can actually look to the Son and see the Father. Now you know, uh, chapter 1, of Hebrews, of Hebrews. Not First Peter. Okay. We're in, we are in Hebrews. Right now we're in Hebrews. I know, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I have two sons. And my sons look sort of like me. And they act like me sometimes. But they also look like their mother and act like their mother. There are times where I'll have a discussion with Malachi and I'll be like, wait, I know how this script ends. I know why he's thinking that. And there are times where where Emily, my wife, and Malachi will get into like a little tiff with each other. And I'm thinking to myself, it's hard to fight with yourself. It really is. <laughs> because they, they think similarly about certain things. Zach has the same sort of thing where he's a little more like me in how he thinks. So people will probably say, you know, you remind me of your dad. Just like when they see me and, and they know my dad, they'll say, you, you know what, I look at you and I see Bobby. That's my dad. You sound like your dad. 
My dad and I happen to have the same haircut, so it's even better. In fact, when I grow my beard out really big, it's very gray and sort of scraggly and kind of dirty looking. And um, uh, there was this event at my church that I couldn't be at, but my dad was there. It was a fundraiser. And from a distance, you see where I'm going? People were like, Adam, that was so cool that you came to the fundraiser. I wasn't there. It was my dad. There's two things. The good thing is, I got a stunt double. The bad thing is, people are confusing me with my 65-year-old father. <laughs> so I don't know how I feel about that. It does mean only from a distance, not up close, not up close. Um, I, I taught a, a class at Spring Arbor University this spring, and I love being around college students. And uh, this one student walked into a classroom that I was teaching in, and, and she said, Adam, you look like a hipster, because I was wearing like flannel and, a, and like a beanie hat and everything. She said, Adam, you look like a hipster. And I said, well, an aging hipster, most certainly. And she said, aging hipster? What do you mean? How old are you? And I said, guess how old I am? And, and this 18-year-old student said, I don't know, like 64? 64. I'm 38. She put me at 64. Like 64, which could mean 70. Nothing wrong with 70. So when we read that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, we kind of expect the Son to look like the Father, right? We, we expect the Son to have a similar aura and presence. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews is not saying, you know, that Jesus, he reminds me so much about his Father in certain ways, but I also see some Mary in there. It's not like that. No. Jesus is the radiance of the one singular glory of God. Jesus is the character, the exact representation of God's being. We even have to be careful about the word character, the way that some translations translate that Greek word, because it makes it sound like imprint. Not unlike, you know, if this, if this cement or mortar or whatever was wet, and I came over and I put my initials in, that would be me be leaving an imprint, just sort of a, a facsimile or an echo of my initials right, right in there. And it would dry and people would go, Whoever wrote his initials in there should pay for that, or whatever. Like, that's, kind of, that's not the imprint we're talking about. We're talking about the same person in the Father and the Son. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man. Theologians have a word. It's a great word. It's the hypostatic. Hypostatic. The hypostatic union. That, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man. He, he's not sometimes God and sometimes human. Because if we think that Jesus is sometimes God and sometimes man, we've just described him as a semi-God, a 50% God. And the problem with that is what? How could he be God if he's incomplete? Because God by his very nature is complete. And we think, well, 50% human and 50% God equals 100%. Yeah, but that means he's only a half of a God. How is that possible? Nor does it mean that Jesus is all God and is merely wearing some sort of an earth suit. He is completely and fully human, which we see in chapter 2. That in order to be a, a faithful high priest, he had to be made like them, like us, like me. Fully human in every way. And it says in Hebrews 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That he had to be made like us in every way, fully human. So the death of Jesus is not God sending someone in human form to, like a mannequin. The death of Jesus is Jesus, fully God and fully human, fully dying. A human being died for you. God died for you yes. in this one person, yes. the Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus said while he was on earth, he said, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, what did they think about Jesus when he said that? Blasphemy. Excuse me, no one can see Yahweh and live. Remember when, when Moses said, I want to see you, and God was like, I'm going to jam you into this rock and pass by you and so it doesn't destroy you. 
He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Jesus says, you're looking at God right now. It's almost like he had a Messiah complex, if you think about it. <laughs> and so when it says in, in Hebrews 1.3 that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, we're talking about God in the flesh. We're talking about Jesus sustaining all things by his powerful word, which we talked about yesterday, that Jesus is literally holding all things together. Last night, Aaron chose the perfect song that probably would have been a great fitting ending for our session yesterday. Oh, Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Like, that's a perfect song. There's this word we use, not hypostatic, it's a different one. It's Christocentric. That Christ is at the very center of everything. At the very center of everything. Now listen, if Christ is at the center of the universe, doesn't he properly belong at the center of my life? Yes. And why is it that I, as a human being, tend to sway and kind of push him off to the left or to the right? Which we'll get to that in chapter 2 as well. And so this God who is the radiance of God's glory, yet fully man, and the exact representation of his being, yet fully God, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Who is sustaining all things by his what? His powerful word. Now let's talk about his powerful word. We talked about how God gets stuff done with his word in Isaiah 55. And so God speaks things into existence in Genesis 1. God speaks and boom, there it is. God speaks and boom, there it is. He never has to get his hands involved as if God even has hands like us. Jesus does. And he speaks these things into existence. And then he comes and he communicates with Adam and Eve, right? Because he comes into the garden and he hangs out with them and they have fellowship and their fellowship is one of communication that God condescends to us. And then Genesis 3 comes along, and what is it that the serpent does to completely destroy our freedom as we knew it, in our choice, of course. Well, what is it the serpent does? What, is it, what does he do? He pushes the greed button. Push it, okay, pushes the greed button, all right. He deceives Eve, okay. Yeah, did God really say? So this, that's it. Did you notice that what Satan does is modify the communication. He, he casts doubt on the powerful word. Did God really say? That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That his word is powerful. But that that word is so powerful that for some reason, Satan and his minions, in, in some strange you know, way that authority works under God, who is above all and, and over all, has this ability to use words as well, which is why sometimes, not always, but sometimes you'll hear that voice in your head of doubt or of accusation or of darkness or deep discouragement that is beyond just the self-talk that we all deal with, like, ah, I'm rotten, I've had a bad day. Like, there's that really deep spiritual... You have to wonder, how, are, how is the demonic part of this unseen spiritual world around us using words to convey the opposite of what God is doing with his words? Whereas God is building things with his word, Satan is destroying things by twisting that word. And so in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted, and they say, yes, it's not Satan's fault. It's ours. We chose in our freedom. That happened yesterday at this time. That's a 920 alarm. I love that. <laughs> if I could have an alarm go off every 20 minutes, I would stay so much better on track. I would. Yeah. So then in Genesis 3, we say yes to something other than God. We give in to a different kind of word, and we say, ooh, I like that message better because, ooh, it, fe it fills my greediness. I finally get what I'm looking for. And then God spends the rest of the Old Testament anew speaking words of redemption. So he sends prophets. He sends the Ten Commandments. He sends his word. He sends his word in Jesus, the Logos, the word made flesh. Jesus continues to speak things into existence even today. It's a powerful word. And it's a powerful word from a powerful person because look at what he does. He sustains all things by his powerful word and he provides purification for sins. One of the great things you can ask when you're reading through the book of Hebrews is just this. Keep, a little, keep track of like, what has Christ done? What has Christ done? My goodness, just in the first three verses, he has been the message, the spoken word of God. He's the heir of all things. He made the universe. He radiates God's glory, represents God's being. He sustains all things by his, powerful world, by his powerful word. And what else has he done? He's just provided purification for sins. No problem, right? I mean, he has done so much just in the first 
three verses. And then it says, oh, by the way, whose sins did Jesus provide purification for? Yeah. What about his? He didn't have any sin. He had no sin. He was tempted just as we are, yet did not sin. He did not sin. And so you have this image of Jesus making purification for sins, which we know is once and for all incomplete because of where he is in the next verse. It says, after he had provided purification for sins, he did something. What did he do? He sat down. And in sitting down, what does that indicate? It's done. Could someone come up here and just sit right there? I'm not going to make you talk or anything. I just need someone to sit right here. Thank you so much, sir. Come on up. What's your name? Craig. Craig? This is Craig, everybody. Craig, sit down. Craig is now playing the part of God. Don't let it go to your head. Play the trumpet? Yes, really Okay. Am I at your left hand or right hand? I'm at his right hand, right? So Jesus comes to the earth. God sends the Son. Send me away. Send me away. Okay? Well, I don't think it was. Send me away lovingly. Like, hasta la vista. Watch, this is how, yeah. Uh. So, I, so Jesus goes, and he goes, he goes to earth, and starts teaching and speaking and healing people, all of it by his word. When Lazarus is in the grave, how does Jesus perform his resurrection? What does he do? He speaks. He says, Lazarus, come out. Does all this stuff. He ends up getting himself in big trouble, which he knew the whole time was going to happen. They come and arrest him. He gets before Pilate, and Jesus is essentially speechless. He said all the words he's needed to say. Pilate even asks him, hey, what is truth? What is the true Logos? Jesus is crucified. Jesus is buried. True to his word, he rises again on the third day. He comes back to life. He defeats death, and he comes right back. He rises, and then what does he do with his disciples? He eats with them in fellowship, and he talks to them. He says, this is how it's going to be. This is what's going to happen now. This is what's next. And then in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he gives us the Great Commission, which is what every salesperson dreams of, is the Great Commission. <laughs> that was really ridiculous. I regret saying that. So he gives us Great Commission. God has been on the throne the whole time. Wherever Jesus was, he was always aware of his Father's presence. And so then Jesus comes back after the ascension, and he basically says, it is done. God the Father says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And then Jesus sits down. Why else would he sit down unless the work was completely done? There's only one other time that he's standing up. And it's when Stephen is being stoned. And it says that Jesus is standing and watching this happen. And ready to receive Stephen. Isn't that amazing? But what's he doing here? Let's talk about that. In a couple of verses. Thank you so much, Dad. Appreciate that. Now, <laughs> Jesus sits down because he's done. It is finished. There is no longer another sacrifice needed for the purification of our sins. He's provided the purification for my sins. Look at Hebrews 7.25. If you would, please. Turn ahead to 7.25. Hebrews 7.25, what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God the Father? It says, in, would someone read, uh, let's go back to verse 23. Could someone read verse 7.23 through 25? Loud and strong. This is Hebrews 7.23 through 25. No, Wait, hold on just a second. So you know what the writer just said, right? In the Old Testament, there, were this, there was this priest who was this priest for this long. That priest would die. Somebody else takes over. Someone else takes over. Someone else takes over. So somewhere there's an honor roll of these, these priests in the Levitical system. Okay, continue, please. But because Jesus lived forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So Jesus died, right? But death could not hold him, right? He gets back up. So there's no more, no more dying. Nor is there a need for Jesus to come back every year and renew this thing. Okay, continue. Always lives to intercede for them. 
You know what the Greek word for interceding means? It means to intercede. (laughs) (laughs) To intercede is to sort of represent on somebody else's behalf. When I intercede for somebody, it's not my problem. It really is your problem. It's your issue. But when I intercede for you, I take your case on my behalf. And I stand up for you. I, I stand in the place that you could stand, that you would stand if you could, but you can't for whatever reason. Why can't we stand in the presence of God and intercede for ourselves? Sin. Sin. He's holy and we're not. not. Do we have any kind of case to describe why we sinned and why God should still accept us? No. You know what most people would argue for? Most people in the world would say, well, I'm a pretty good person, so I'd like to think I'll go to heaven. One of the hardest things I have to do, and man, this is a really, this is a tough, Again, I don't know why I'm going to keep coming back to this theme today, but being a pastor is a tough, it's a tough role. Because sometimes I'll have to do a funeral where you just know that person was not a follower of Jesus. And the, the human sort of soft side of you wants to say, it's okay, they're in heaven now. But you can't dilute the gospel. Like, it's not, that's not how it works. It's not that good people go to heaven. I wish it was, sometimes. But I all, we all know that it wouldn't work. So we need someone to intercede for us. And so it says in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. So while his work is complete, yet he still continues to do a work of standing up for us. Which, here's what should blow your minds right now. He knows all of you by name. He knows all of your sins. He knows and has heard your confession of sin. He has forgiven you. And then he continually plays the role of intercessor between you and God. Because I can't stand there on my own. But Jesus, not because he has anything to gain by it, but simply out of his great love and obedience to his Father, stands and says, I want to tell you that Adam is worth it. And Adam does not deserve the death that, that on paper he deserves. To which God the Father says, oh, I know Adam is worth it. And I know I love him. And I know that his sin gets in the way between me and him. And that's why I sent you, my son, to purify Adam from sin. It's really easy for us to think God has these conversations about people. But I'm asking you to consider that conversation about you and you alone. That he talks just about you like that. Interceding for us. Turn with me to Romans 8. In Romans 8... Uh, We'll pick it up at verse 20. Mm. Eh. We'll go back to 18. Romans 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is Paul writing. Given what we've just read about in Hebrews, and now reading this Romans 8, 18 through the end, and thinking about this role of interceding, of representation, consider that. Consider all these things together as we hear this word. Paul says, <laughs> that was our ministry of music or something, wasn't it? What was that? We have a bar in the kitchen? Oh, okay, all right. You know what? Again, uh, great love and appreciation for our food service gang. So thank you. Thank you. Seriously. That was our reminder to appreciate the people who feed us. Thank you. Thank you. If a reminder goes off every five minutes, I only assume it will be for a good reason like meatloaf. Okay. (laughs) Romans 8.18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Could somebody quickly recite Hebrews 11.1 1 from memory? Now faith is what? Mm-hmm. Faith is being cert, um, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Who hopes for what they already have? Who hopes for what they can see? Mm-mm. We hope for what we do not yet have. In the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now who's interceding? The Spirit. Now we've got to be careful we don't slip into a thing called modalism, where we make it so that the Father, Son, and Spirit just have their own jobs and sort of work independently of each other. Have you, the Trinity is a very bizarre concept. In fifth grade, Mr. Dolan, my, my Sunday school teacher, tried to explain to us the Trinity. And I remember he drew a picture just like this. I can see it. It was on a chalkboard because I predate whiteboard technology. See, kids, what we used to do is we used to take these cylinders of powder and compress them. And Anyway. Um, yeah. So Mr. Dolan drew this and he said, boys, because it was a fifth grade Sunday school classroom, boys, this is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, the blessed three in one. Everybody got it? <laughs> we were like, no. And so he would go on to explain. You know, they're, they're co-equal. They're co-eternal. They've always existed. God, you know, identifies as a father, and Jesus is, is the son of God, yet he is fully God, the hypostatic union. And the Spirit is fully God, and Jesus sends the Spirit, but God sends the Son, but God sends the Spirit, but the Spirit works through Jesus. I mean, it just, we're like, that really clears it up. Fifth grade, right? You know? But one of my favorite moments from that is I remember I asked a question. I do not recall what the question was, and quite frankly, the question doesn't matter because the Trinity is just mysterious in and of itself. But I said, Mr. Dolan, and I said, da-da-da-da-da, ask some question. And you know what he said? He said, I don't know. It's the best answer that we humans could give. I don't understand it. I don't fully understand it. A God that I can understand? No thanks. That's me. I'm the God that I can understand. That's why I want to be in charge, because I know what I'll do if I'm in charge. But I also know that I'll mess it up. So the God that we don't understand has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The scripture in and of itself does not make a direct argument for the Trinity. We, as followers of Jesus, the church fathers, developed this over many, many years. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ, the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one, right? I'm so glad we sang that song yesterday. Of all the lyrics you could have bouncing around in your head, we would want the Apostles' Creed to be one of, those, one of those lyrics. So now we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And it says in verse 27 that the Holy Spirit searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so these three are working together constantly and regularly to somehow join us, certainly not as like the fourth member of the Trinity, and yet at the same time pulled into this community somehow through God the Father creating us, our falling away. He sends his son Jesus to bring us back. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you so that you will be able to have the strength needed to stay in this and to become the people that I want you to become. What is our standard of humanity? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one human that got it right. He's called the second Adam. The first Adam completely blew it. The second Adam, Jesus, did it. Jesus is the second Adam. He did what the first Adam could not do. Because remember, Adam, the first Adam, was born in perfection. There was no sin. He didn't inherit any kind of sin. He wasn't born into sin. He was born into perfection. He couldn't do it. Jesus did not have any sin. He was born into perfection. He was born sinless. He did it. He did it. That's what's hard about having the name Adam. Granted, it's the oldest human name. And by the way, the name, the word Adam, Adam means dirt, which brings me right down to reality. That really is what it means. Because we are dust. God has blown his breath, his pneuma into us. Um, there's a hymn that we sing. It's, a, it's And Can It Be? And bled for Adam's helpless race. I could never help but like, feel really bad in that moment when we sang that. 
So Jesus is interceding for us. You have someone interceding for you. And Father, Son, and Spirit do this together, the blessed three in one. The last thing from, from Hebrews I want to point out. Did you notice that it says in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times in various ways, but in these last days. Any guesses as to what that means? In Hebrews 1, 2, or 3, whatever it is. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What does the writer of Hebrews mean by the last days? What are the last days? What's he referring to? Yes, sir. The most recent days. Okay, yeah. Jesus comes again, so like the last days, okay. Sound about right? Who's his audience? We don't know. We don't know, but we think it's Jews. Jews, yeah, Israelites. People who, people who know the, the Jewish customs. So, so Jewish people traditionally broke time into two eras. They are the present age and the age of the Messiah. And a Jewish person is waiting and praying and hoping for the coming of the Messiah, because when the coming of the, when the Messiah comes, we will be into the Messianic age. Though they did not know it, Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah and has taken us into the Messianic Age. And so it's almost like the writer of Hebrews is putting in a little jab, which is like, you know, in these last days, Messianic days. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, now, then verse 4, Hebrews 1.4, that Jesus, and this is so confusing, it's always confused me, that we talk about the majesty and the glory of God, and then we get to verse 4, and all of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews is talking about angels. Why do angels all of a sudden show up? So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Why all of a sudden are we bringing angels into the mix? Where do angels fit into the Holy Trinity? They don't. So angels are different. Angels are not part of the Trinity. They, are not, they don't have the divinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Why does he bring up angels? So, it must have been a question. It must have, yes. That's another reason we want to know who the audience is. We, I want to know what does the audience think of angels. And by the way, whose name has yet to be mentioned in the first four verses? That's right. You never actually read the name Jesus in there, do you? Fascinating. We read that, that Jesus has credibility, has always existed, but he has credibility because of what he has done. And Hebrews builds the credibility of Jesus as our great apostle and high priest. And we read that the angels have some kind of authority, but not maybe supreme authority. But interestingly, Jesus himself is not brought up. So, before we get to angels, let me ask you this question. How is it in our world today that people are trying to get to God? What's that? Angels. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are some people who are really into angels. Like a lot. Angels among us and guardian angels and that. Like I have a, a friend who's very spiritual but not a Christian. So sometimes she'll post things about like, like a Zen Buddhist quote or something. Or sometimes she'll put up something by Nietzsche and sometimes like C.S. Lewis. Um, and then she'll put up a post about how she's on her second guardian angel. Which I think is like because she's tough or something. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But like just sort of this like interesting mix of why is she doing all this? She's trying to get closer to... God, right? One of the biggest things happening in our culture today is we're sliding from, from a Western point of view to a more Eastern point of view in our spirituality. People are open to an Eastern spirituality in a way they weren't before. Do you see that anywhere? Yeah? What, can you give me some examples? Like, what do you see when you say, oh yeah, like, what is it that comes to your mind? New Age movement? Sure, absolutely. The crystals and the, yeah. What's that? Oh, the hot spots in Arizona, as featured in Arrested Development Season 4, I think. Yeah, right. Yoga? Uh, yeah, yoga, sure. Now, there's some yoga on its own, it's just exercise, but like the spiritual side of it, like trying to find your inner... Karma. Karma. Oh, thank you. Karma, who said that? Five points. Karma is huge right now. And I'm not just talking about the old show, My Name is Earl, from the 890s. Like, this karma thing, like... That's how most people chalk it up as to how the universe works, which is, I got to do a bunch of good things to make up for a bunch of bad things I did to make it so that more good things will happen to me. You know why we're drawn to Eastern spirituality right now? Because we're in an age of post-modernity. We figured out all the science stuff we can, in essence. Now it's just basically extending the frontier we have. Uh, we have found that science does not give the answers we're looking for. We have all the information in the world at our fingertips, on our phones, and in our computers. 
ask me anything, I can find out right now, why am I not complete? Got a sure, as Pascal said, you have a God-shaped hole inside of you. It's because we have found that rationalism does not fulfill us. And honestly, Western thought is quite rational and quite linear and logical and angular. Eastern thought is really kind of loopy and warm and just kind of, well, we are humans. We're so much bigger than Eastern or Western thought, but that's the reason that Eastern spirituality is becoming such a big hit. It's because in Eastern spirituality, I still have some semblance of control. Because Christianity is completely different. Christianity is all about surrender and saying, I can't pay my way to get to God the Father. I have to really trust in someone. Whereas, like, um, karma is about me paying the way. Turn to Hebrews 10.19. So how is it that people are trying to get to God, to draw close to God? The big question for humanity, if God is real, how do I get to know him? What if God was one of us? Hebrews 10.19. Would somebody read Hebrews 10.19 through 23, please, out loud. Oh, and tell us what version you're going to read it in. Who's got it? Hebrews 10.19 through 23. What version do you have? Nasby. Nasby. All right, here we go. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart. Wait a second. A Jewish ear just heard that. Say that draw near thing again. Let us what? Let us draw near. To who? Is that what it says? Uh, with a sincere heart, uh, since we have a full, have a great priest over the house of God. And a Jewish person is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That person just said we should draw near to God. We can't do that. Are you crazy? We would die. With, yeah. We'll die. You've got to tie a rope around me yeah. and pull me out, pull my carcass out. I can't just, I can't just draw near to God. Are you out of your mind? Are you, are you crazy? Every Jewish person is afraid of getting too close to God. They're afraid they'll get their face burned off. In Exodus 33:20, Moses says, we cannot see God and live. In Genesis 32, Jacob is surprised as he recounts the fact that he was able to interact with God and he wasn't destroyed. No one entered the presence of God except for the high priest, and that was only once a year. And he'd go in with bells and a rope around his waist so that if he were to be in God's presence for too long and died, they could at least pull the carcass out. Once a year. Can you imagine the beads of sweat coming down that guy's head thinking he's going to be in the presence of Yahweh as a representative of all of these sinners? That's what he's thinking to himself. And he's hoping that God is in a, a good mood. <laughs> Israel had access to God, but only in their either obedience to the law or their propitiation or making up for their, for their sin. We call it sin. So the Levitical priesthood and sacrifice system at its time took care of all these problems. But now suddenly you've got the writer of Hebrews saying, what? What did you just tell us to do? Draw near to God? I don't think so, man. We need a priest. We need to figure out what they were going to do this according to the ancient customs. We need to make sure that everybody's washed themselves. We need to make sure the priest is clean. This is, this is insane. This is absolute insanity. The only thing which would make that a safe move, is if we had a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. Can you think of a perfect priest? Can you think of a perfect sacrifice? He's the same one. If they have that, they'll have access, and they have it in Jesus. And so, the reason angels come up early on is because the Israelites have learned that God will speak to people either through a prophet or through an angel. Angels are God's messenger. And God's messengers are dangerous. Not as dangerous as God, but dangerous nonetheless. Could you come up here for just a second? Yeah, come on up. Hi. Hi. Is it all right if I volunteer you? Okay, all right. What's, what's your name? I feel like I've met you before. What's your name? Steve, how are you? I'm Adam. Good to meet you. Steve, you're, you're a big guy. Is Steve taller than me? I th I th it's close. With the hair, the hair gives them an access point. Anyway, what I would like you to do is just stand as fiercely as you can. Just, just really freak people out. Go. Three, two, one. Go. Yeah. Awesome. Now. 
That was pretty scary, wasn't it? No. Could you come up here for just a second? Just for a second. Oh, look, she's so excited to come. All right, just come on for just a second, would you? Would you please? Is it okay if I volunteer you? What's your name? Kristen? Okay. So now, Steve is right here. All right? Look really scary, Steve. Kristen, now you look really scary. Okay. Which one is scarier in a dark alley? They're both dangerous. They both have the power. They could crush us. I would rather hear a message from Kristen than Steve, wouldn't you? This is how a Jewish person, person would view an angel. Angels are still terrifying and dangerous and powerful because they've been in the very presence of God. But it's not as dangerous as interacting with God himself. Thank you both. Okay, thanks. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. The messenger was dangerous, but not as dangerous as God. So, after a while, the Jewish people started to recognize angels as sort of a mediator. You starting to see the problem here? Because who's Jesus? The mediator, the, the intercessor. They've grown so accustomed to seeing angels as their intercessor that they need to be talked out of something. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is about to do. Would you turn with me to... Or some, I mean, actually, I'm going to throw out four verses, and I want you to be able to read them out loud when I, when I ask for them. So I'm gonna, I just need someone to take it. Galatians 3.19. Who's got it? Galatians 3.19. You got, you, what, what's, what's your name? Jennifer's got it. Galatians 3.19. Deuteronomy 33.2. What? What? What's your name? Lynn. Lynn. Okay, Lynn's got Deuteronomy 33 too. Psalm 68, 17. You got it right here? Patch. Patch? Patch Adams. That's easy. Okay. Acts 7.53. You got it. Okay. Acts 7.53. So review. Galatians 3.19, Deuteronomy 33.2, Psalm 68.17, Acts 7.53. So what do you know about angels? Angels are servants and not rulers. They stand before the throne, but they don't sit on the throne. Let's just dive a little bit into angels throughout Testaments new and old. First, Galatians 3.19. What does Paul say about angels? Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels Aha. by means of a mediator. The law was put into effect by angels through means of a mediator. This is, how, this is the Jewish view, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 33. Let's talk about Sinai. 33.2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Haran. He came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came the fiery law for them. Ten thousands of what? Saints. Hmm. Which could also be translated as... Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy, or sorry, Psalm 68.17. Yeah. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary, into his sanctuary. Thanks, Patch. The chariots of God are the angels. And then Acts 7.53. We get into not only the angels as messengers, but the problem we have. Acts 7.53. Who's got that one? You have been given the law by the visitation of angels, uh -huh. but you have not obeyed it. Uh-huh. See that? So it even acknowledges this sort of Jewish view and belief. Yeah, sure, the angels gave you the law. That's great. You stand on that all you want. The problem is you knew the law and you what? You didn't obey the law. God is surrounded by angels, probably millions of them. We don't know. They are created beings. And the Jews assigned names to angels over time. And they were seen as God's army, God's chariot, God's messengers, God's agents. Sometimes the word angel and messenger were used interchangeably. So the word Malachi means God's messenger, but Malachi is also sort of like the word for angels. So angels have the task of bringing a word to humans. Where do we see an angel bringing a word to a human in, a New Testament, in the New Testament? Mary. Mary, right? Angel comes to Mary as God's messenger and says, here you go. Jews believed that the angels were sort of made of a fiery substance, like a blazing light. And they believe that they were created on either the second or fifth day of creation, depending on how, how you look at it. They believe that angels did not eat food or drink any kind of liquids. They believe angels didn't have children, although is it Genesis 16 that sort of dives into that? So there's some strange things there. Um, and they believed that the angels were immortal, 
and yet could still be annihilated by God. And then we get into the whole thing of like the existence of the fallen angel and the demons and all that. But they believed, back to our throne just for a moment, that here's the throne of God the Father, and here's God the Son. They believed that around the throne, of course the Jews did not believe that this was here, they just saw Yahweh. So around the throne are these sort of like inside angels, like the inside circle of angels, right? They flew around the throne of God like in Isaiah 6. And so because they were always around God, they sort of heard what God was thinking and deliberating on. And so it was sort of like secret service agents who happened to be at the meeting in the Oval Office and happened to hear this or that or the other thing. And so they believed, Jews believed that the insider angels had even more knowledge about the future because they were like God's senate or God's cabinet, God's like, like trusted confidants. And so Jews believed that there were these seven archangels which were like leaders of the angels and that includes like Michael and Gabriel and Raphael and, and different ones. And the angels had certain jobs. Some were messengers. Some had the job of keeping the world spinning. Some, this is scary. They believed that there were angels that would record everything we said. Like a court stenographer writing down everything we said, which is scary to me. I worked in radio for five years. It was a drive time show. And every Friday afternoon, we'd go into the boss's office and we would sit down and we'd do this thing called an air check where they would play back random recordings of our breaks of whatever we were talking about. It was so hard to listen to yourself. Just babble on and on about inane, silly things. Can you imagine having a transcript of everything you said? How absolutely embarrassing that would be. The only one who has a perfect transcript is Jesus. Some rabbis believe that angels were like houseflies, that they lived only a day or two, and that they were renewed every day. So it's easy to see why a Jewish person would see an angel as sort of a, a big deal. Almost divine. And so the writer of Hebrews has to convince these people that angels have their place, but they are not as high as the Son of God. It's very easy to believe that angels play a role in our relationship with God because they have this access to God. But we don't need an angel to have access to God. We have one who's provided an access to God, and it's who? It's Jesus. Jesus is the supernatural man who has bridged the gap between us and God in a way that angels never could. Because all angels can do is whatever God tells them to do. Jesus is God. So whatever he does is whatever God does. And yet Jesus also models a submission to the Father, again, the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus has opened the barrier. So what I'd like you to do is um, take a moment and pair up with somebody, just one person. I'm going to give you two fellowship minutes. That's what I'd like you to share. Is there anything in the book of Hebrews that we've talked about so far that you find fascinating, bizarre, peculiar, challenging, encouraging? And how might God be doing that work in you? Like, what's God talking to you about? Okay? I'm going to give you one minute on each side. So I'm going to give you one minute for, for, to kind of, you know, first pair up. And then just share your side, then have them share their side. What is it? How is Jesus speaking to you about this today? Go! Twenty seconds. It's so loud in here. Okay, change it up. Other side, other side. Sorry. 
You guys did so good on that. I please don't let me forget about that. All right. All right. So give us a snippet. What did you share in a snippet? What stood out? Why? How's God speaking to you? Yep. Yeah, go ahead, please. How did the Jews get the idea of the angels to start with? The angels showed up and talked to them. Yeah. And they were like, ah! And they wrote it down and they remembered it because it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, the angels would, would say, I stand in the presence of God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, how did they come up with the list? I think the rabbis, it was, you know, the rabbis were sort of assigning, trying to understand this angelic system. So I don't want to say that it was only the rabbis. We have no idea. The angels probably do have unique jobs. Like Jesus himself talks about a guardian angel. He references it. So, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Yeah, All right. great. Yes, ma'am. So in Hebrews, and I can't remember the verse, but where um, always to be hospitable because we may unaware be entertained. Yes. Right. Yes. Jesus said they don't even drink. How do I entertain you? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> your, your gift of hospitality is so obvious right now. Angel food cake. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Harbin with the win. Brilliant, my friend. Brilliant. Yeah, because you're like crackers, and they're like, no thanks. Coffee? No. Angel food cake? <laughs> Angel food Oh, we're having angel food cake for dinner. What a glorious thing. How is God speaking to you about Hebrews right now? What's, what's he saying to you? What's he talking about in your life? Yes, ma'am. Just the whole idea of him interceding for us constantly. Constantly. That's a hard concept, but a beautiful one. It's amazing, isn't it? Don't you think he would get tired from that? I'm projecting onto Jesus my weaknesses. I would get tired with that, so I bet he will too. Yeah. I'm irritated with myself, so I bet he's irritated with me too. You see what we do? Anyway. Yeah? Yeah? I think you're just stealing that. Come on. No, no, I believe you. I believe you. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Intercession. Yeah. This thing's recording, don't forget. Yes. Yeah. Um, but both of us said, you know, that, <laughs> that, you know, things that we say, you know, to somebody in confidence even, you know, you may, maybe you're complaining about someone or whatever, and then what came to mind is the thing last night where it says get rid of all anger, rage, malice, and filthy language from your lips, and I suffer from most of those. <laughs> so that really hit me as, yeah. okay, if, if they're recording, maybe I yeah. Thank you for not pretending like everything's fine and other people have sin problems but not Christians. Thank you. I'm finding that to be a barrier in Christendom. Well, you know, yeah, I know. Could you tell us some? No, no, no. Take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. Yeah. So I should be clear, it's not that the scripture says an angel is recording what we're saying. We, we don't say that. I'm just saying this is what rabbis believed. But if God really knows everything and hears all and sees all, why would we doubt? I, don't, I think that he knows what I'm thinking. That's why when we pray, it's not filling God in on details. He wants, to be, he wants us to join him in his work, and we can't do that without communicating. Oh, we could go down so many trails right now. I need to help correct something. Um, the chapter, verse, headings, and notes. Yesterday I mentioned the message. Um, I don't want to say translation. Commentary or, or paraphrase. paraphrase? Thank you. And someone said, you know what I don't like about the message is it doesn't have the chapter and verse and all that like, like the Bible does. And I thought it should probably be said because how would this be known unless it was said? That the original text of scripture does not have chapter and verse in it. Did you know this? Yes. Not everybody knows this. And this, it's good for us to talk about these things. We forget if the church is really growing and the church and new people are coming to Christ, there should always be people among us who have no idea what's going on. Which is why on Sunday mornings when I say, I don't do it here because most of you guys are more initiated in this stuff, but on Sunday mornings in my church, I'll say, would you take out a Bible and go to Hebrews 2? And so I'll say, 
you know, the book is, the Bible is actually 66 short books, and one of those books is called Hebrews. It's kind of in this part, and I show them on, you know, this is where it's at in my Bible. And I want you to go to chapter 4. So I'll say, look for a big number 4, like a big fat number 4, and maybe like a little tiny 9. I'll say, that's chapter and verse. I walk through it that way. And what that does is it makes people go, oh, he actually wants us to turn to this, and he's giving me time to do it. I give time to do it. It's really important. Um, our churches should be hospitable to those who are uninitiated, don't know Christ yet. How would they know? So uh, we would call chapter verse especially paratext, which means it goes along with the text. Now, admittedly, the Old Testament was broken into sections, and even in the, old, in the before Christ days, the Torah was broken into sort of manageable sections, about 150 or so. It wasn't until the 1200s that they started doing the same thing with the New Testament. And they take it and they sort of break it into sections, but it wasn't until the Geneva Bible of 1560 that we have a standard way of breaking the Bible into chapters and verses to make it more... Um, make it easier to study. And then I would call the Geneva Bible the first study Bible because it also had like text notes and commentary in it as well. So does anyone have like a life application or an NIV study Bible or something? Do you you have it? Not with you, but just do you have one of those? Right. So another thing I want to say is please don't confuse the paratext with the text. Don't be like, oh, you know what it says about this down here in this bottom part is blah, blah, blah. That's one person or maybe a group interpretation and there's sort sort of theological bent on that. Um, that's not the scripture. Okay? Uh, in fact, the scripture pretty much looked like this. This is an example of um, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we found in the 1920s, which is also why the King James Version isn't a tremendously reliable translation, because it predates the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found these in a cave. How, how bizarre is that? And the Dead Sea Scrolls were basically a compendium of the, compendium of the scripture, and we trust and rely on that. But you'll notice that um, they're just rolls of paper. And they, because paper parchment was so... Um, so short in supply, they would cram on as much information as they could. They didn't have room for headings and stuff. I say all that to say this. In Hebrews 2, it says we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And because we think chapter and verse, because that's how we've been reading the Bible most of our lives, we think that that's independent of chapter 1, for whatever reason. It's not. Remember, there was no Hebrews chapter 2. There was no heading. It just said, it says the therefore in reference to everything that it mentions in chapter 1. Uh, which I think we'll get to more tomorrow, or now. We'll talk more about angels tomorrow. Angels are interesting. Um, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not, what? Drift away. And the, the imagery there is like a piece of driftwood. Perhaps this tree that was once you know, stately and tall and beautiful and majestic, home to birds, leaves that gave us shade, all of these things, falls into the water and is just floating away. We were up at uh, Charlevoix this summer, me and my family, and we had the privilege of watching a piece of driftwood come in. It was really cool. I was with my son, Zach, the younger one at that point. Uh, Just he and I were on the beach for that part of the day. And so we're out there on Lake Michigan. It's about 60 degrees outside, which means the water temperature is about minus eight. And he sees this driftwood and he says, Dad, I want to get that piece of wood, that floating log. I want to bring it in. It probably came off Big Beaver Island and just sort of drifted in. He says, I want to get that. I'm like, dude, two things. One, that water is cold and that water is deep. And I cannot shrivel up enough to just show you how cold this is. He's like, Dad, we got to get it. So he goes and he starts crawling on the rocks along like the dock thing to get out and get it. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll get it. And so I go out. My son will convince me to do things by risking his life. And so I go <laughs> and, I, and I, get, I get the tree and I like pull it in. And I pull it up to the, to, the water, to the beach and it starts to dry out. I'm like, Zach, this is driftwood. This tree was once... Da, 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 da. This is the imagery that the writer of Hebrews is giving us. He's saying, don't turn into driftwood. And the reason I want to bring that up is because some of us are so academically minded that we forget about our hearts. It's really easy for us to sit and banter about the trivia of the Bible. Oh, angels are this and that. The, the reason that this thing is written is not so that we would know more about God in the Bible. It's so that we would know Jesus himself. That we wouldn't disassociate ourselves as sort of just a mind with a body and a soul. But, but no, we are more than that. It's not about information. It's about getting to know Jesus better. So, how is it that human beings drift away spiritually? What are the things that pull us away? We're so stinking busy these days. How many of you are aware that our session is almost done? And think about the next thing. Technology. Yeah, me too. We're so, things are moving so fast. Then our technology, which is supposed to help us, is only making us more frenzied. Isn't that fascinating? That's good. They're fighting. 
We don't have time for that. Uh, <laughs> you ever have that thing where your teleprompter says this and you're like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> this is what John Wesley says, just in reference to somebody who knows a bunch of stuff. He may be almost as orthodox as the devil and may all the while be as great a stranger as he is, as the devil is to the religion of the heart. You understand that everything that we're, we're talking about, demons fully believe. That demons have no problem believing that Jesus is the Son of God. That this is no, they don't doubt that. They just don't want you to live it. They'll even let you believe it as a mental assent. They just don't want you to live it out. They just want to make it so that you have a mild dose of Christianity just to make sure that you are not a threat to this kingdom of his. And so, let me ask this question. I'll leave that up there for a second. Yeah, so pretend that this word is devil. He may be almost as orthodox as the devil and may all the while be as great a stranger as the devil is to the religion of the heart. And when Wesley uses religion, he's actually talking about like a living religion, not a dead sort of religion, like the real stuff that affects us. And that's why Hebrews says, as sort of a, an aside, therefore, because of everything we've just said, we have to be careful not to drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, the messengers gave us this message, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I would suggest to you that the non-Christian life is a life of continual bondage. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Why do you agree with that statement? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Only Jesus can set you free. Absolutely right. Does everybody in the world believe that? No. no. But everybody is in some kind of bondage. They want to be set free from whatever it is. And I would suggest to you that if Christianity is true and Jesus really is who he says he is, he's got to be the only way to be truly set free. It just, it just makes sense. If he's anything less, he's not Jesus. And so last but not least, because the scripture says signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, would Jesus still be considered divine if we never saw signs, wonders, and miracles? Yes. Are you sure about that? If Jesus never did a miracle, water into wine didn't happen. happen. Raising the 12-year-old girl from the dead didn't happen. Heal the leper didn't happen. Take all those, all those signs, wonders, and various miracles, take them away. Is Jesus still divine? If he still rises from the dead, yeah. We've got to have that one in there. The, the resurrection is non-negotiable. It'd be harder to believe, though. Can we be honest about that? It'd be harder to believe. Yeah, I want proof. Yeah, especially on, the, in the, on the, the, the western side of us, we really want proof. Which is why Jesus would show up on the scene, and they would say, hey, do a miracle for us. And what did Jesus always do? No! I'm not your one-trick pony. I'm not doing it. I'm no David Copperfield. And they're like, who's David Copperfield? <laughs> Jesus is not a magician. And he's not a pinata that we strike just right so that the candy falls down. He's the son of God. And he has nothing to prove. Absolutely nothing to prove. Jesus doesn't need me to believe in him for him to be true. So every sign, wonder, and various miracle he does is a semiotic. Semiotic is a word that means sign. It's, it's in communication theory. We talk about how a sign represents something, something greater. This picture right here is a semiotic. That, is that Clear Patton? Yes. I think I was here when this lodge was built and dedicated because I remember the name Clear Patton, and that's his wife, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay, you guys know the story. So that's not really him and her, right? That's not really them. This is a sign that points to their actual lives, all right? So Jesus does a sign, wonder, and various miracle, and that the purpose of that is not for it to stand on its own, because he's not a wizard or a magician. What he's doing is he's pointing to the greater thing, which is his salvation, right? Yeah? Well, some of the times, like when you talk about the Samaritan woman at the well, it seems, I mean, he told her what all about herself, but it wasn't to point toward God. I think it was because he wanted her to, to listen to what he wanted to say to be able to get the message. And, 
believing that he could offer something better. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes it was just like, hey, pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't... But, but doesn't Jesus have the power to make us think differently? These aren't the droids you're looking for. Doesn't he have the power to do that? But he chooses, he chooses to like do it in dialogue with us. Isn't that fascinating? He's a relational God. That's what he's all about. We'll pick it up there tomorrow, but let me just tell the lasagna story, if I may. So this is what happened. I was in, I was in Wellspring a long time ago, and the new vice president of admissions, Matt Osborne, started his job at, at Spring Arbor, and I was on Wellspring, and Wellspring fell under Matt's purview as a vice president. Brand new, we'd never met him. We're out in the parking lot at Spring Arbor University, loading up our van for another trip to some camp someplace. And Matt drives up in his old blue Mazda, and he still had kind of a southern drawl, a much deeper drawl than he does now, at least to my ears. And he was like, hey, you guys going out on a new trip? I'm like, yeah, we are. What? I'm Matt Osborne. I'm Adam Wellspring. Oh, yeah, I heard all about you. You guys are great. And he, we talk for a minute, and then he says to us, hey, as you guys go, just blessings on you. Blessings on your trip and blessings on you. What he said was, blessings on you. Blessings on you. What I heard was, bless lasagna. And I thought it was this, like, and he's like my boss, 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 like super ever. I'm like, yes, sir, Mr. Vice President. Bless lasagna. So now his son works at Renovation Church with me. He's our student ministry pastor. So I'll go, Scott, bless lasagna. And there's, there's some Osborne kin here, which we've shared in the story of the blessed lasagna. And to this day, I can go to Matt Osborne and say, bless lasagna. And he'll say, amen, brother, amen. Bless lasagna. It's just one of those, just one of those things that happen. We're out of time. Are you going to come back tomorrow? Yes. You aren't going to give up because it's the middle of the week and you deserve a day off, right? No. It gets even better. We're going to talk more about angels and stuff. Until then, um, Kevin, do you want to wrap it up? Or? No, all set. Oh. Just unless uh, you did want to volunteer for tonight, uh, you okay. can come see me. Uh, remember, everything is being recorded, not just his, but you know, there's some good teaching going on at the Tabernacle. It's all online. Yeah. Can I, can I pray for us before we go? Yes. Jesus, our intercessor, our great high priest, our Lord and Savior, we thank you so much for helping us through this time. Not to know more about you, but to know you better. May, may we be aware of your voice throughout today. May, be, may we be aware of your presence. And may this be the beginning of what you want to do tonight in the tabernacle. We pray for your spirit to fall and to find freedom to move, that we might be renewed. We love you, Jesus, and we go now in your name. Amen.